Hello, readers. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this is a bookin brought to you by Explore Booksellers, Aspen, Colorado's trusted community bookstore. Wherever you are in the world, it is always good to explore. My guest today is Matthew J.C. Clark. His essays have appeared in True Story, the Antioch Review, the Seneca Review, Echo Tone, the Indiana Review, and many others. His new book is Bjarki, Not Bjarki, which is published by our friends at the University of Iowa Press. Matthew, welcome to the program. Mm, Nice to be here, Jason. It's an honor to have you here, Matthew. And first, um, before we talk about your book, what's happening up in Maine right now? Where is Bath, Maine? And uh, how has it been up there in the COVID era? Yeah, well, you may have heard recently, uh, Maine just endured um, a pretty horrific uh, shooting in Lewiston. So... I think we're all a little stunned mm. by that and saddened as well. Um, I was fortunate uh, not to be there mm. um, and fortunate not to be personally affected uh, by by loss of a loved one or, or anything. Um, so yeah, I guess I guess those events are coming everywhere even to Maine. And, um, that's, that's a reality that we're, that we're living with right now. And in, um, I'm in Bath, which you mentioned, and, uh, Bath is on the Kennebec river, uh, maybe about 10 miles from the coast. And, um, actually the Androscoggin river that goes through Lewiston, uh, where the shooting was, uh, joins the Kennebec river in Mary meeting Bay. Um, and then flows out past my house and I'm actually in my house right now. It's a beautiful day, fall day. Um, we still have some leaves. There's frost this morning. Sky is crystal clear. Yeah. Nice. The ground's covered in snow here in Aspen, but, um, yeah, we, you know, uh, we'll talk more about guns and things later, but, um, you know, the school shooting stuff kind of started here in Colorado, but it feels relatively safe here now. But someone was just found in an amusement park here in a cavern with about 20 guns strapped onto him. Um, and he, he shot himself before he did anyone else harm. Um, and I was talking to my wife. We moved here from North Carolina about a year and a half ago. And she's like, oh, I thought we were somewhere safe. And I pulled up the North Carolina news from where we moved. And literally, like, the first eight headlines were all about shootings. Um, and it's, yeah, just, it's out of control. Um, yeah. yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, we'll talk more yeah. about that later. Yeah, like I said. But um, let's now uh, get into this weirdly wonderful book, Bjarki, not Bjarki. <laughs> um, Matthew, could you take a moment to set this novel up for our listeners? Wow. Yeah. Uh, I hope it's a very long minute here. Uh, first of all, I would say it's it's nonfiction. Right. So um, I'm happy to call it a novel. Uh, but I, I want to be sure that people know that it's 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 real, yeah. <laughs> as real as a book can be, mm-hmm. you know. Um, but to set it up, um, it's really 
about my uh, attempts, my journey, uh, writing about a character, a person named Bjarki, who runs a very specialized lumber yard in central Maine. <clears throat> and what sort of sets them apart is uh, they, they manufacture these super wide uh, pine boards, mm -hmm. um, 20 inches wide, for people who uh, know anything about nominal dimensions of lumber, that's a lot wider than anything you can get um, in Home Depot. And as far as I can tell, these are the widest pine boards in the world, <laughs> which is pretty cool. Um, and I'm a carpenter by trade. So, um, you know, I grew up in Maine and uh, worked in a lot of the old houses here and the carpenters that I trained with were really enamored by these old houses and always very attracted by the craftsmanship exhibited in those houses. And one of the things that I remember them booing and awing about were the super wide pine boards um, in those houses. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I carried that interest with me. Um, wide pine boards have to come from a very big tree. Mm -hmm. um, which is pretty cool. So it's a very rare thing, especially in the woods of Maine today, um, where the forests have been cut over several times and the trees are encouraged to grow much more quickly and often cut before they get um, that big. So anyway, uh, the book is about me checking out this guy, Bjarki, to write a magazine style essay about him and his product, um, these wide pine boards. And um, very quickly I sort of realized that Bjarki is not <laughs> the person I want him to be mm. of course uh <laughs> you know I think I envisioned him as a master craftsman who could introduce me to the secrets of wood or something I had a very romantic idea about who he was going to be um and he turned out to be a, a wonderful young man, um, but he was not that craftsman. And he, his ideology, um, political and some other views about the world were very different from my own. Mm -hmm. And as I kept trying to write this essay, um, I found myself trying to change who he was. Mm -hmm. um, on the page, but also in our interactions together, because I wanted him to fit into my conception of the perfect subject for a book. Mm -hmm. um, and at some point through this book, Bjarki Not Bjarki, uh, I realized that I can't write this magazine style essay and that what I'm really doing is something else. Um, and I start to see, you know, lots of other ways that I'm wishing the world is different from the way it is and how I'm also trying to change it um, to better reflect what I want. And I start to see the problems <laughs> with that kind of worldview and that kind of um, efforting. Mm -hmm. uh, and so the book kind of spins out into all these different realms. Um, there's a thread about uh, my marriage, which is falling apart, and there's stuff about climate change, and mm -hmm. um, in the background, I'm 
renovating a house that has some of these floorboards in it and um i've somehow ruined that floor <laughs> <laughs> right on thank you so much matthew so yeah i did not mean to um call this a novel it is uh, as real as it can be as you say but um what would you uh call this novel is it a memoir about you matthew jc clark <laughs> is it a profile about bjarke is it a philosophical treatise on the subject of floorboards uh what is this book and why open it with a gun oh yeah okay well <clears throat> it does open with a gun doesn't it yes um I think before I answer that question or try to answer that question, mm -hmm. I just say that I think it's, it can be all of those things. Um, and I, <laughs> I spent a long try time trying to get it published. And I remember in the pitch trying to tell people that this is like nothing I've ever read before, which is probably what every writer says about their, um, their book. Uh, I just want to alert you to a sound you can maybe hear. That's my oven. Can you no, hear that? I cannot, but I'm happy. Okay, good. Cool. There's a sound happening. Yes. Um, there's, there, there's, a, there's a problem with what I've learned is the motherboard, and occasionally it just tries to lock the door. Oh, so geez. you repeatedly hear the, the door latch kind of. Oh, that's fun. So that's the background noise if you hear it. Everything yeah. is okay. Yeah, uh, good to know. There's no yeah, yeah. Um, so I, I might call it a profile. I might call it um, an essay. I might call it. Um, I think I like the term essay because that feels so flexible to me. Um, and, you know, I I studied with John Degata and he um, in Iowa and he uh, was really expansive in his idea about the essay. And um, that feels helpful for me. Mm -hmm. um but yeah i think there's also some like i i like to think of myself as <laughs> writing a treatise um and and i think it reads sometimes like a novel also mm -hmm. um in in terms of the way we get inside some characters heads um mm -hmm. it starts with a gun because <laughs> that that chapter so i think the gun shows up maybe in the in the third sentence there's a gun yeah. in the paragraph um, wherever that is. Yeah. However many. Yeah. Seconds. It's the first paragraph. And, um, that chapter is set in Florida mostly, mm -hmm. um, right before the events of January 6th. And yeah, I'm start with a gun. Well, I like the idea that when we see a gun early on, we think it's going to go off. Right. Um, and we're yeah exactly when the gun is in the room it's got to get used mm -hmm. um and i think the wonderful thing about what happened with my relationship with bjarke mm -hmm. is it could easily have turned um vitriolic i think because our political and ideology ideological perspectives are so divergent and he um argued with such vehemence from his perspective and really was good about getting me worked up to argue from mine um you know i think we got past that those differences that kind of um headbutting mm -hmm. and so we never 
shot the metaphorical gun. <laughs> right, right on. Um, I think that's one reason why. Also, Bjarke was really into guns and mm. has a lot of guns. Yeah. And guns are everywhere in this country. And they scare me. <laughs> and, um, you know, in Maine, after this shooting, there are headlines about the the run on guns to go buy more. And, mm. you know, it makes... I just, I don't believe that that's the answer. <laughs> and I'm, and I'm sorry that there's so much fear out there. And that that's what I think is motivating those purchases. So. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and we'll, uh, we're going to return to a couple of those topics uh, later, specifically um, Bjarke's guns in January 6th. But first uh, you mentioned here towards the beginning of, of this book that people have things quite a bit more things. <laughs> Um, than you do at the beginning of this book. And so my question is, uh, is the amount of things that a person has the best indicator of their happiness and personal success? <laughs> mm. I don't think so. <laughs> um, I think we could, I, could, I can't quote any wise men, but I, I think a lot of them say and wise women, <laughs> and I believe them. The things, the material, um, it's not where happiness is found. But I do believe there's a base level of thingness that we all need. Um, and boy, in this country I and a lot of the world, I feel like we're obsessed with getting a whole lot more than what we need. Yeah. Um, and there's a lot of cultural cachet and status to those acquisitions and Gosh, I'm writing an essay a little bit about this now. We we celebrate wealth and and the wealthy and the accumulation of it and the the appearance of luxury. And I think that that God, Jason, I'm feeling a lot of sadness so far in this interview. Anyway, that um that celebration I think leads to a lot of unhappiness <laughs> and uh. And disparity, and I think we can draw direct, direct lines to that kind of um, material wealth to a lot of suffering in the world by people who have less um, necessarily because of the imbalance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, and I don't feel you like you're throwing a lot of sadness out. I feel like it's more <laughs> okay. talking about like false happiness, right? Um, which could be two different things. Um but I'm now going to tell you a story that is seemingly going to have nothing to do with your book, but I promise I'm going to bring it back around to your book. Um, so uh, in Raleigh, North Carolina, where I moved here from, there was a music festival called the Hopscotch Music Festival, where um, it tends to be like a thing that recruits all these up and coming bands that are going to be big, you know, a couple years down the road. And um, my friend, uh, I'll call him Scraps McMasters. We, the very last show of the festival was in this small dive bar and there was this band playing called King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard. Um, this was in about 2014. And, um, you know, the whole festival, we had a great time. And then all of a sudden we're in this dive bar where this, it's just a huge mosh pit. There's way too many people in there. We're in front of the stage. I'm getting knocked down. I'm knocking the guitar player's beer down on his pedals and like trying to pick it up for him so it doesn't make a mess. Uh, my friend is like trying not to get in a fight. Uh, we get out of the club at the end. And the thing that he says is, it's been too long since there's been a war on American soil. Um, now to bring this back to your book. Wait, your um, friend said that? 
Yes, he says that because you know he's in this place where there's people running into him, knocking him down, getting over. Yeah. They're taking yeah. out their aggression into this rock and roll music. Um, so now I want to ask you about a quote in your book, and I'm hoping you can talk sure. about it. And that quote is in all caps, and it is. The tree of liberty must be refreshed from time to time with the blood of patriots, um, mm. end quote. Uh, this reminded me of my uh, concert experience, but I'm hoping you can talk about it in the context of your book. Sure. Thanks for that question. Yeah. Mm. So that quote uh, comes from a text message that Bjarke sent me mm -hmm. on January 6th. Mm. Um, and, you know, sometimes it was difficult to tell with Bjarke how much she was playing up, uh, this sense of being anti-government, uh, pro, pro-liberty, freedom, whatever that means, kind of in the militaristic sense. Mm -hmm. Um, but in that moment, those words, um, were pretty meaningful, pretty scary. It felt like we didn't know what was happening mm -hmm. on January 6th. And um, I was sitting on a beach in Florida with, with my good buddy, and we were watching these events unfold on his phone, uh, just kind of in disbelief um, about what was maybe going to happen. And I guess in the larger context of my book, I don't, I don't address really what it means to be a patriot explicitly or what freedom is. But I like to think that if there's a tree of liberty, it can be refreshed with water and stone. Right. <laughs> and, uh, and no, and we, we don't need to kill each other. Mm -hmm. I think that's what um, Bjarke's text is implying. And I, I'm I'm of the opposite camp, and I really hope that book that my book, um, if if maybe it doesn't show how to water the tree, it shows that it's possible, you know. Yeah, absolutely wonderful. Well, we will return to uh, January sixth after the break. But first, listeners, we are going to take a break here for a word from our sponsor, and then I will be right back with Matthew J. C. Clark. The Book and Podcast would like to thank Libro.fm Audiobooks for their sponsorship. Libro.fm has the same audiobooks at the same prices as their major competitor. You know the name. But instead of supporting the Big River, you'll be supporting your favorite neighborhood bookstores. Please head on over to Libro.fm and enter the promo code BOOKIN, that's B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space to get one free audiobook and support your favorite local independent bookstore, explore booksellers in the process. I'm back with Matthew J.C. Clark, author of Bjarki, not Bjarki, which is published by our friends at University of Iowa Press. Um, Matt, I told you we would get back to January 6th. Uh, chapter two of your book begins, quote, uh, 16 months before the rioters stormed the U.S. Capitol, uh, dot, 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 end quote. Um, I'm wondering 
if Insurrection Day, as many folks are calling it, will become a new marker of time, like mm. September 11th or D-Day or something like that for folks uh, who live in the United States of America. Um, why frame your chapter with January 6th? And do you think that using Insurrection Day as a marker of time or a frame uh, is something that will last for years beyond, say, 2023? Mm. Yeah, I think it will. I mean, I don't want to play fortune teller. Actually, I do want to play fortune teller. That's a fun game. Yeah. Uh, but at <laughs> the risk of being totally wrong, I think it will. It's a. It was a. It was a big deal. It was a huge event. And I think the what has happened after the sort of denialism mm -hmm. of it by half of the population, or or the reframing of it. I, I'm not sure what to call uh what those uh other people are <laughs> doing with the events of you know of january 6th uh but i think history is gonna see through it and is gonna see that we came to a crisis point and something changed on that day either <laughs> we refresh the tree of liberty mm. with sunshine and with water or we went to this dark place and the tree <laughs> oh my god this metaphor i'm sorry <laughs> and the tree withered you know yeah. so we poisoned it like mm. i don't want to poison it but i think like you know it it's going to be hard to forget that day and writers are if they're not mentioning it it's going to be in the background of mm. things it is it's a fact and it is important to pay attention to. Um, yeah. I hope that answers the question. Yeah, it does. And, um, you know, I think this may end up being the first episode of the book and podcast with a subtitle. We might just call the, uh, you know, booking with Matthew JC Clark, uh, you know, or um, what might happen to the tree of Liberty. We'll see. <laughs> um, but my next question for you, you call Maine, uh, where you live, the oldest, whitest state in the country. Is it? And why or why not? Oh, yeah, I guess um, I meant oldest by population. Yeah. Um, so we, as a people, a main people, mm -hmm. are uh, pretty old, it turns out. Um, I can't give you the statistics, but we've got a lot of gray hair in this state, mm -hmm. you know? Um, and we are not uh, colorfully very diverse. Mm -hmm. It's a very, very white state. And I think that it is the whitest state. Um, and I think we might be like, well, what about Wyoming or what about Alaska? But um, I think there are more significant native populations in those states. Uh, the oldest, whitest, and what was the other thing I called the state of Maine? You just called it the oldest, whitest state in the country. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> it's true in the in that yeah. regard. Um, if we want to talk about sort of the age of the land, uh, I think we're all in we're all in the oldest place. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. I um yeah, I wouldn't have gone Wyoming or Alaska. I probably would have said like Vermont or New Hampshire. But I guess mm. Maine fits right in there. Um, yeah. We're in the same uh, geographical area at least. But um. 
Back to guns now. Uh, Bjarki owns 35 guns. Uh, he moved to Maine because of the friendly gun laws. Uh, why? I'm hoping to make sense of this. Why does Bjarki need 35 guns and friendly gun laws? He maybe needs 50 guns, Jason. Uh, or maybe 25. It was it was really interesting. Bjarki as a character was um was was fun and difficult to work with because he, he is a human like all of us and he's always changing mm. and and his narrative what the way he understands himself is is a a thing in flux mm. and in addition to that he was always buying and selling guns so i never knew quite how many guns he had i'm not sure how many i don't know if he ever knew exactly mm. and at the same time i think he was prone to mm, exaggerate sometimes to tell to try and tell a story that he liked that he liked and so um that's why that number shifts um so much in the book mm -hmm. uh i think and and he he was a complicated character i think he would have called himself a libertarian mm -hmm. um and he sort of seemed to buy in wholeheartedly to the best government is no government and so guns are, you know, a cause of the libertarian movement. Um, and he had been living in New York City and New Jersey before he came to Maine, where, from what I understand, there are much stricter gun laws. Um, and I think he felt some fear in the city also, physical fear for his own safety. Yeah. Um, and I think, yeah, people feel fear everywhere. And his response to that fear was to get away from it and to protect himself in a way that felt sufficient to him, which required firearms. Mm -hmm. um, and, and Maine offered that opportunity. I think also there was like a little bit of like, um, <laughs> yeah, I talked about this a lot with Bjarki and it was difficult to get, as I said, a clear, unchanging answer. Yeah. But I think also there was some romanticism about living sort of the um, roughing it in the woods. Mm. And and Maine has, um, to some people, kind of a frontier feel to it. So he could go out and sort of maybe live this life that he imagined of being um, the hunter, self-sufficient, don't need government, don't need any help, can do it myself lifestyle in the woods. Um, and that was really appealing to him. I think that's a pretty romantic notion, but it's true. Maine is different from New York City. You know? Yeah. Yeah, we've got some of that going on in uh, the surrounding environs of Aspen, yeah. Colorado here as well. Um, well, Bjarki, so half of our... Um, Listeners here will understand this reference and half won't, but um, hopefully the question will address everyone. Bjarki hates Al Gore's movie, An Inconvenient Truth, even though, as he says, he has definitely not watched it. Um, so my question, Matthew, is why do people choose to hate things that they are unfamiliar with? Mm. <laughs> well, I have... I. I do want to clarify that that's something that we learn over the course of the book that um, actually he has seen the movie. Right. And uh, yeah, so he claims not to. 
-hmm. he claims not to early on um with some uh braggadocio i guess yeah i've never seen that movie and i (laughs) i think he he attaches a an obscenity to the front of it Uh, but um (laughs) i think I think it's so much easier to hate things that we're unfamiliar with. Mm-hmm. I think the more familiar we get with something, the more we know someone or something, mm-hmm. the more we understand it, whatever understanding means, it's almost impossible not to love that thing. Mm-hmm. I think understanding and knowing and connection and love are inseparable. Mm-hmm. And um, <laughs> love is scary. Hate is scary too, but I think maybe hate is easier. It's quicker. It's more reactionary. Um, There's a different kind of satisfaction from it. Um, And so I think, I think we can't hate things that we're super, that we know intimately. And, and so, you know, that, that's, that's why Bjarke asserts that at first, um, not knowing that movie, not having seen that movie, and he hates it, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Fantastic answer. Thank you, Matthew. Um, Finally, uh, Matthew, we haven't talked much about uh, your personal relationship that was sort of failing as you were writing this piece about Bjarke and floorboards. Um, but why did you think that fixing a house would fix <laughs> your relationship? Oh, well, I want to say I was really young then. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so in in this book, um, there's a character, my then wife, mm-hmm. who I refer to as B, mm-hmm. um, and her name begins with the B. Mm-hmm. Um, there are lots of bees in this book, actually, mm-hmm. um, bumblebees and bjarke bees, uh, mm-hmm. but. Uh, so B and I moved from Wyoming to, I grew up in Maine and then we met in Iowa and then we went to Wyoming and lived there doing our own kind of roughing it yeah. version of Bjarke's uh, pioneer life. And we did that in Wyoming a little bit. We didn't buy guns there though. Um, and then uh, we came back to Maine and bought a house um, that was in very rough shape. It was in such a rough shape that it was referred to as the squirrel house by the neighbors. Mm-hmm. It was filled with squirrels. Um, and it was just like, it was falling down. And as a carpenter who loves old houses, I fell in love with it. Mm-hmm. And um, I think I didn't know it so much at the time that I was using the beautification of that house the house that I'm in right now, mm-hmm. um, the house on Robinson street that I was using that renovation, that beautification as kind of, um, a transference, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, because my and B's relationship was, was difficult and, um, it wasn't working mm-hmm. and I desperately wanted it to work. Um, but I didn't know how to help it and I didn't know how to grow in it and to allow B to grow in it. And so I put 
everything into this house. Mm-hmm. And I thought, oh, we. it's important to know that as I was working on the house, we were living in my parents' house, which mm-hmm. was difficult. Yeah. Um, but it felt, and, and as that, because that relationship was difficult there, we we're living in the basement of my parents' house. It felt like if we could just get out of that house, the basement, and into this beautiful space that I was making for us, mm. then we would be okay. Mm. Um, so I think I told myself a pretty convincing story <laughs> yeah. about how the house would solve everything, but mm. it didn't. And I think there was another honeymoon period where, you know, we felt some hope and some lightness in this space. Mm. Um but we needed more than a house. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah. My house here in Colorado is also on Robinson street, but um, wow. yeah, my wife, yeah. Right. <laughs> How crazy is that synchronicity? But um, yeah, my <laughs> wife and I, we had a, a kind of an old broken down house in Raleigh, but we just decided rather than try to fix it, we're like, let's just sell the house and get a different one in Colorado. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but very good. Well, um, you know, thank you, Matthew, for writing this wonderful book. And thank you so much for uh, allowing me the time to talk to you about it. Listeners, I've been speaking with Matthew J.C. Clark, author of Bjarki, not Bjarki, which is published by our friends at University of Iowa Press. Matthew, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Jason. Once again, I would like to thank Matthew J.C. Clark for joining me. Copies of Bjarki, Not Bjarki can be ordered from www.explorebooksellers.com with free shipping for members of Explore More Plus. I would also like to thank our sponsor, Libro FM Audiobooks. Please navigate over to Libro.fm and enter the promo code BOOKIN, that's B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space to get one free audiobook and support your favorite local independent bookstore in the process. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this has been Bookin'.